Good morning, everyone. Yeah, so today is a very important day in the calendar of the church, one of the most important days, right? It's Palm Sunday. Uh, it's the first day of what we refer to as Holy Week, the last week of the life of Jesus. Um, and for most of us, this is a week that's going to go by just like a normal week, just like any other week, right? We're going to go to work, go to school, spend time with our families, with our kids, um, probably watch a lot of Netflix, maybe watch a basketball game or two. Um, it's going to be a pretty typical week. But 2,000 years ago, this is a pretty different story. 2,000 years ago, today marked the beginning of one of the most important weeks in the history of the world. And uh, in the Bible, it's called the Triumphal Entry. This is a painting of the, uh, of the Triumphal Entry. Um, one version of it, we have Jesus there on the donkey with um, people surrounding him laying down cloth, laying down clothes, waving palm branches. Uh, and th I think the first thing to say here about Palm Sunday is that the writers of the Bible thought it was incredibly important. There are only four stories that are found in all four Gospels. And Palm Sunday happens to be one of them. To put that in a little bit of perspective, the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story, is only found in two of the Gospels. So for whatever reason, the writers of the Gospels decided that this was a story that needed to be kept in, that this was a story that needed to be shared. They thought it was incredibly important. So we're going to take a look at the story. I think in your booklet or in your bulletin, we have the version in Mark. Um, I'm going to read a slightly different version. Thank you. And I want to uh, pick up on where Ed was talking about. I want to read the version from John uh, in its full here. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So we call this the triumphal entry. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, or Hoshana. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had been done, and, and, sorry, and that they had done these things to him. Word of God. So there's a lot going on in a short reading. It's just four verses, but there's a lot of different things. Um, and I'm thankful for Ed, you, you touched on some of the symbols that we talked about here, right? With the donkey, um, and there are people shouting this word, Hosanna. Um, there's this festival that they're going towards, and then there are these palm branches. And these palm branches are a very important signifier, and I want to also talk a little bit about them. And I think Ed did a really good job of talking about them from that Greco-Roman perspective. There is also a history of palm branches that come from the history of the Jewish people. And we're going to touch on that a little bit, because I think that Palm Sunday is the absolute natural time, the perfect time of the calendar to talk about another important religious holiday, Hanukkah. It sounds weird, but just go with me a little bit because Palm Sunday is the perfect time to go back and to tell the story of Hanukkah. It'll shed a lot of light on what is happening here 
I think. So to tell the story, we have to go back a couple of hundred years. In fact, uh, not to Jesus on the donkey, but to a different man, a man by the name of Judah the Maccabee. Now, you know that thing where basically everybody you meet in L.A. has a screenplay in their back pocket, and it's for like the next big action superhero movie that's going to make billions of dollars? Well, Judah the Maccabee, his story is very much like that. Now, I'm not saying that that's mine. I'm just saying dibs. Because when you start to dig under the surface and learn a little bit about Judah the Maccabee, it starts to sound like Lord of the Rings meets 300 meets Braveheart. It's kind of a, a crazy action story. The story actually occurs in between two pages of most Bibles. It occurs between the last page of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and the first page of Matthew in a time that we call the silent period, because it's a time when no prophets were writing. Uh, it's a book, and the book of uh, Maccabees is often found in what we call the apocryphal books and some other Bibles, but it's, it's an important part of Jewish history. It occurs about 400 years, or there's about 400 years that happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, and that's where we find ourselves. So a little bit of history here. We have this guy named Alexander the Great. Probably a lot of us have heard of him. And Alexander the Great does this thing where he, he conquers the known world in the name of Greece. And he did it not because he wanted to conquer people, not because he wanted to uh, get taxes from them, not because he wanted power. He did it because he genuinely believed that the Greek way of life, the Greek culture, was the way to save the world. That by spreading that, he could bring hope to the world. So what they would do is they would go in and they would conquer a city and then they would build these, these buildings, theaters and gymnasiums and all these other things and they would spread the Greek language and they were trying to spread the Greek way of life as a way of bringing what they th were thought of as these sort of backwards barbarians up into modern culture. So this is something that happened to the great temple city of Jerusalem. And if you fast forward about 150 years after Alexander the Great conquers, he has a descendant named Antiochus. Antiochus. I apologize. And Antiochus IV, and he was a pretty terrible dude. People referred to him as Antiochus the Madman. And in particular, he didn't like the Jewish people, and he wanted to really get rid of them from the city of Jerusalem. So he did these things like... Um, he would forbid the Jews from practicing their religion and a lot of their practices, like circumcision. He would forbid the uh, Hebrew language from being spoken. He had his soldiers go into the temple and uh, kill pigs on the altar of the temple. He, referred to him, he thought of himself as Zeus, and he put a statue of Zeus in the temple. He did a lot of just really terrible things to these people. And, uh, and so he drove some of the Jewish people out of the city, or they, they left to sort of flee from this tyranny that they're experiencing under this terrible man. And they're living in the hills. And uh, one rabbi in particular, which was the most important rabbi of the time at the temple, is a guy by the name of Matthias. And the Greeks come into his temple out in the hills, and they force a man to kill a pig on the altar of the temple. And Matthias doesn't have this, and he kills the Greek, he kills a guy who sacrificed. He does this whole thing, and it sparks this thing that we call the Maccabean Revolt. It basically sparks this big war. Uh, now, this, this rabbi had this son named Judah, Judah the Maccabee, which means Judah the Hammer. 
And Judah the Hammer is just like, that's a name that means you're going to war, right? Like, that's like, the, you hear that on the, the cover of the comic book, Judah the Hammer. And, and Judah, it turned out, is this great military leader, and he wants to fight back. So he gets together these Jewish people, and he teaches them to be guerrilla soldiers. And he teaches them these war tactics, and he gets this plan together. And he goes to battle against the Syrian Greek people who are holding the city hostage. And to put a little bit of perspective on this, on one side you have the Greek people, and they are a fully equipped army. They have all the right weapons, the swords, they're wearing armor, they have war elephants, which is a word that I didn't think existed outside of like Lord of the Rings and, and things like that, war elephants. Um, and then on the other side, you have Judah, the Maccabee, and his small band of guerrilla fighters with basically primitive weapons. They're, th they're using sticks and stones here. But they prevail. It turns out they're a really great band of people, and they push the Greeks out of the temple. They take back the city of Jerusalem after a long battle. Now, after they take back the city of Jerusalem, the first thing that they have to do is they have to go into the temple and they have to do what's called consecrate it. They have, got, they have to get the temple up to working order. One of the problems is that in the middle of this big battle, they had to skip one of the most important Jewish festivals, which is called the Festival of Booths. So they, they, they missed one of their important holidays so that they could get the Greeks out of the city, and now they have to go back and they have to have this holiday again. And so in order to do that, they have to do a, a few things. They go into the temple and they build this lampstand so that they can light the lampstand, but they don't have enough oil and they don't have time to make it. So they have a little bit of oil that's going to last them just for one day. They use that oil. The oil lasts for the entire eight days so that they can have the festival and it can be consecrated in the temple. And that is where we get Hanukkah. That is the story of Hanukkah. If anybody, I didn't really know the full story of Hanukkah before I started writing this. So um, that is the story of Hanukkah. Well, one of the things about that festival that they miss, this festival of, of booths, is it happens in the fall. It's a harvest festival. And in that festival, what people would do is they would take palm branches and they would move into the city. Thousands of people would move into the city and they would build tents out of these palm branches in the city and they would live in them for eight days. So you can see why that's not great military strategy when you're in the middle of a battle, right? But palm branches were an important part. They were a symbol of God's harvest. They were a symbol of God's blessing upon the people. So now they have a new festival here in the winter, uh, Hanukkah, which is a, uh, a festival of dedication. And in that festival, they reincorporate these palm branches. And the, the meaning changes a little bit. Meaning changes from God's provision of harvest, of food, of plenty, into God's provision of saving the people, of this revolution working, of coming in and kicking these terrible people out of the city. It's a symbol of revolution. A symbol of political independence. And even later on, we see in Jewish culture, there's a few other places, uh, Jew, the, the Jewish people, about 100 years later, actually gain a full independence for, for voting purposes and things like that. Um, and once again, in that celebration, they continue to use palm branches. So fast forward now to the time of Jesus. We have these Jewish people. They're living under this oppressive rule 
by the Romans, right? They're living with the, the boot of this military superpower sort of holding them down. They're being taxed to death. They're being beaten. They're watching their, their families be oppressed, their friends, other citizens. There's a lot of things going on. They're being exploited. There's a lot of injustice. Now, it's the, Paso it's the, the festival of Passover, the time when we're going to celebrate remembering when God brought his people out of Egypt, brought his people out of a different type of injustice. And Jesus is here, and he's this new, this powerful rabbi. He's getting really popular. He's performing these miracles. In fact, just before this story is when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and word of that is, is spreading, and, and everybody's getting really excited. And he's coming in, and he's riding on this donkey, fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah of the new king riding in on the, the colt of a donkey. And the first thing everybody does is they go down and they grab palm branches. And they wave them, and they lay them down, and they put them in front of Jesus. See, they want a ruler. Palm branches in both this Roman period and to the Jewish people, they, they symbolize this revolution. They symbolize this power. They wanted a ruler. They wanted Jesus to come in, horse and chariot, army behind him, ready to kick some ass, ready to boot the Romans out of Jerusalem. And what they got was one guy on a donkey. They got a peacemaker. They got a very different kind of person. There's a commentator named Ricky Woods who talks about this and says that for Jesus to enter Jerusalem amidst these shouts and the waving of these palm branches could have very easily been seen by the Romans as a major act of defiance against the Roman rule. But what removes that hint of defiance is the fact that Jesus rides in on a donkey and not a warrior's horse. This shows that God's plan of deliverance would not come by violence, but would come through humility. It would come through love. It's hope, humility, and love operating in an environment of danger that shows us what God can accomplish and how. The church sometimes is called to engage in dangerous activity whether it's speaking out of, on issues of injustice, whether it's providing theological clarity about the church's purpose in a culture that really just craves entertainment so much of the time. Palm Sunday is more than another day of celebration in the church as it awaits Easter. It's also a day of reflection on how the presence of believers in dangerous places can transform them into places of hope. Palm Sunday is God's reminder to us what can be done when courage, humility, love, and hope all coalesce and enter places of danger. And what can happen when those are filled with these character traits, when those people who are filled with these types of character traits, hope and love and courage, engage in these types of dangerous activities. All this leads to salvation. So yesterday was another type of procession in our city. Not a parade, but a march. Right? Yesterday was, as Ryan mentioned, the March for Our Lives, a very important march. It's estimated that 800,000 people showed up in Washington, D.C. alone, which may be the largest single-day event in the history of Washington, D.C. More than 800 protests were scheduled around the country in every state and in every continent with the exception of Antarctica. Not a lot of penguins marching. But this was a march, right, to reform 
our country's gun laws. This was a march to, uh, to bring peace, to bring hope for the future generations. This was an issue that desperately needs to be talked about and dealt with in our country. There's a, a great pastor out of New Orleans named Reverend Elizabeth Lott who um, has this to say about these types of things. We talk about these things not because they are easy, but because we love each other. And when we love our neighbors, these, uh, sorry, and we love our neighbors, these conversations include clean water, safe neighborhoods, just policing, adequate food for all people, and identifying and naming systems and structures that contribute to dirty water, unsafe neighborhoods, unjust policing, food insecurity. Here's an example that she gives. When we, start by, uh, when we start identifying that there are children three blocks from our church who go to school hungry and who do not have stable, secure housing, we respond with meeting some of those needs. You need food? We can give you a backpack filled with food. In fact, we can give you enough food for your whole family. Before long, we want to know more about the family's needs. And then we begin to ask how the family became homeless and how such needs occur and then we begin to ask how anyone in our city in the 21st century, when we have all of this abundance, when we have all of this great things, how anybody in, the, in our city in the 21st century consistently and regularly can go without enough to eat, when we often have more than enough for ourselves. We ask these series of questions because love demands these types of questions. That's when the theological becomes political. That's when the theological becomes political. That's when things we believe about God and the things that we learn, the things that we practice inside of a church like this, that's when we take all of those things and we take them and we go out into the world and we make a change for our future. See, the path of Jesus must be a path that we live out. The kingdom of God is not going to be found in systems, in structures, and in powers that want to hold injustice and bring people down. If we're going to enact this overlapping of heaven and earth, what we could call on earth as it is in heaven, if we're going to enact these types of things, they must be created, they must be welcomed, they must be nurtured, they must be brought into the world through the ways that we live, through the ways that we love our neighbors, through the ways that we care for the other. In our story today, Jesus is riding on a donkey to his certain death. But he's showing everyone who is watching that the way of Yahweh, the way of God, is different from the way of Rome. The way of the kingdom of God is different than the way of ego, the way of demagoguery, the way of this big political system, the way of oppression, the way of injustice. He's inherently making things political out of the theological because he's drawing near the kingdom of God. He came and lived as a homeless man. He taught for three years as a homeless peacemaker, and he taught for three years. He came so he could preach about love of our enemies, so that he could show us a new way of living, so he could give these people and give us the keys to transformation, both individual and personal and global and out there. He came as a different kind of Messiah, and the people missed it. Just five days later, they're standing there shouting, crucify him, the same people here in this picture. See, I think that often part of what happens is that the Jesus that we want, the Jesus that we're hoping for, is very different from the Jesus who shows up. 
I think we often want this kingdom of God thing to miraculously take shape. For God to come down to punish these big warmongers, to just kick out all the injustice, to kick the walls out, burn the place down, just let, you know, let's just, let's get back to this peace place we, where we know we could be. We want this thing to just happen in a very sudden way. But for this peace of God, this shalom to take shape, it must come through us, through our actions in the world and through how we engage and how we enact the shaping of this world towards peace. Uh, there's one other picture I want to show here that I came across yesterday of a sign uh, from the march yesterday. Um, I think when, when tragedy strikes, one of the things that comes up a lot is we often talk about this idea of thoughts and prayers. It's a debate that you hear a lot, right? Our thoughts and prayers are with the people out there. But this really struck me yesterday. What if, the, what if these kids are the answer to your thoughts and prayers? Are you listening? I would encourage us all just to take some time this week in what's going to be just an average everyday week for us and to listen to engage in this bridge as we leave Palm Sunday and we go towards Good Friday, towards the death of our Savior, and then towards Sunday of his resurrection, to take some time and to listen. We're called to enter into, in, we're called to enter into and to engage in brave and bold and courageous and sometimes dangerous things. To use our actions to bring about a different type of peace in the world for the good of us for the good of our neighbors for the good of the other for the good of everyone we're called to transform places of despair into places of hope through peace because the love of god demands it there's one last thing i want to touch on here and that is that when jesus is on this donkey and he's riding into the city the people are shouting this phrase at him they're shouting hoshana or Hosanna, this is a phrase that literally translates into God save us. This is a, 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 it's a battle cry. It's something that the Israelite army would shout as they were marching into battle. But as we think about how we can help the injustice of the world, as we think about the world that we can bring about through peacemaking, through loving of our neighbor, through loving of the other, I can't think of a better battle cry that we could bring ourselves. God be with us. God save us, because we have a savior that comes in on a donkey. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys mind standing to your feet? We're just going to sing a little bit more. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing can stand against What a beautiful name it is The name of Jesus What a beautiful name it is What a beautiful name it is The name of Jesus Christ my King What a beautiful name it is Nothing compares to this what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is, what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name.
wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. Let's lift it up. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name. 